0: I'm glad to be here. My name is Jonathan Williams, and as Pastor said, I came here last January for Resolute for the conference. Got to meet many of you then, and when I came home from that conference, my wife was asking about you all in the church here, and I told her two main things. I said, first, let me just tell you, it is a loving church, one of the most loving churches I've ever been around. And I said, second, they have cultivated there. I talked about... Pastor Scott and y'all' staff and team of leaders here I said they have cultivated a discipleship culture where, where they love growing in the faith, they love the Word of God, they love sharing the word of God uh, you got it right there we 're going to tell them the Word of God right and so I shared that with her, and knowing that about you, I believe the passage we 're going to look at today will kind of resonate with your heart because it 's a passage about not just growing in the Lord but then passing that faith down to the next generation. Uh, got to serve yesterday with Pastor Brian and many of you for the family conference and got to hear some of your stories and testimonies, got to hear about some of your kids and grandkids. And so I've been praying uh, for you all. And as we look at Psalm 78, you will see there, there is a heart not just for the next generation, but specifically for our children and grandchildren. So I'm hoping God will keep that prayer on your heart this morning. As we walk through this passage, if you have your Bibles, you can uh, turn with me to Psalm 78. As Pastor Scott said, I'm from Texas. Right now I'm in Fort Worth, Texas. I've been in North Texas uh, for a lot of my life. Lived in Houston for 10 years when I pastored there. and I I wear boots every day, like many Texans. But when I was growing up, I only wore boots once a year. And, And that was when my parents would take us to the rodeo. Now, when I was in Houston pastoring, Houston has like the biggest rodeo I've ever seen in my life, you know, with the fried butter and fried Oreos and, you know, fried fries. And then Fort Worth, they got big rodeos. But when I was growing up, we'd go to a small rodeo called the Mesquite Rodeo there in Mesquite, Texas. You've probably never heard of this place and so once a year, my brother and I, my older brother, we'd put our boots on, we'd go to the rodeo, and they would do this thing at the end of the rodeo. They'd get all the kids, fifth grade and down, they'd get them into the arena there in the dirt, and we'd line up shoulder to shoulder, and they'd get a cow and tie a ribbon on the tail of the cow, and then they'd shoot a gun in the air, because they didn't care if you shot guns around kids back then, and they'd shoot a gun in the air, and the cow would take off running, and then all the kids would run, and if you could get the ribbon off the tail of the cow, you won a prize. So every year, my brother and I, would get our boots. We'd go to the rodeo. The whole rodeo, that's all we're thinking about. we get there shoulder to shoulder. They'd shoot the gun. Cow would take off running. We'd take off running. And every single year, we, we lost. We never won. So when my brother was fifth grade, his last year to get to do this, I'm getting ready for the rodeo. i get my boots on. And I'm walking by his room, and I notice he's putting on his tennis shoes, his Air Jordans. I said, you're not going to wear your boots to the rodeo? And he looked at me and says, nope, I'm going to catch that cow. He'd been thinking about it all year. We grew up in the 80s. In the 80s, they told you if you had the right shoes, you could dunk even. And so he was convinced with the right footwear, he'd be fine. So I I still wore my boots. I didn't learn my lesson. We got to the arena shoulder to shoulder. I got my boots. He's got his Air Jordans. They shot the gun. We start running. I slip and fall face in the dirt immediately. Dirt in my mouth, dust in the air. And I'm looking through the dust, and I see that cow way ahead of me with the ribbon kind of waving behind it. And I see my brother and some other kids chasing it. And sure enough, on that day, my brother's last shot, got the ribbon, won, we won a, or he won a $25 gift certificate to El Chico, not gift card. They didn't have cards back then it was a gift certificate, which back then that was like three meals for our family. And, and so that night we all went to dinner at El Chico's, a Mexican restaurant, and, and my brother paid for dinner in fifth grade. It was amazing. But uh, before we get into Psalm 78, I wanted to share that story because I want you to picture those kids lined up shoulder to shoulder. They're running as fast as they can, as hard as they can, chasing that thing, chasing that prize. Their heart is beating. And with everything they've got, they've been dreaming about it since the last rodeo last year. And I want you to know that your kids, your grandkids, the kids and youth of this church, the next generation are lined up right now. The gun's already been fired and they are running with everything they've got and they're chasing something. And if it's not the Lord Jesus, then whatever they're chasing, whatever thing of the world they're chasing, I'm telling you, is put them on the path to destruction. And in Psalm 78, we meet a congregation of God's people, not too unlike what we have right here this morning, and they feel the weight of this. They feel the urgency of making sure that they tell to that next generation who the Lord is, what He's done. There's an urgency for us as a church to pass the gospel on to that next generation so they won't chase the things of the world, but instead they'll chase after Jesus Christ. And as they seek him, we know they will find him. So if you would, turn with me to Psalm 78. I'll start in verse 1. Let's uh, read our text this morning. This is a psalm written by Asaph, and it starts in verse 1. and says, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God that keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for your gospel. We thank you for saving us, Lord. We can remember where we were before we knew you, how we lived our lives, and we thank you that in your grace, your mercy, your patience with us, Lord, you saved us. We praise you for all those who shared your gospel with us, Lord, those who taught us the scriptures, those who even when we were little were pointing us to you, Lord. And I pray that now you would allow us to do the same for others let us share the gospel with the next generation let us proclaim your word to the next generation lord so that they would set their hope in you we pray this in your name jesus christ amen as we think about sharing the gospel with the next generation passing our faith down to the next generation i've been thinking about you know the the relay race in the olympics a year from now we'll be watching the olympics again my wife Her favorite is women's gymnastics. So she and my daughter get pretty fired up about that, but me and my boys, we, we love the track and field because, I, as I tell my boys, you get the fastest people who've ever lived in the whole world in one spot, and then they just race each other. I think that's the coolest thing ever. It reminds me of elementary school. After every day, we had a foot race in the parking lot, and we'd always get the fastest people, so I just kind of cheered and watched. I never got to do it. Uh, we'd get the fastest people, and that's how you knew who the fastest in the school was. So I love watching that, and in that track and field, they have a relay race. Race. Have you ever seen this, the relay race? So you get four guys and each of them going to run a lap carrying a relay baton and after one lap they're going to pass it to the next guy. So he's running with the baton and he goes to pass it. This guy does this little move and catches the baton and he runs the lap and then they keep passing it on. I'm anxious to watch the U.S. men do this next year because if you don't know, you might not know this, but the U.S. men are terrible at the relay race in recent history. I'm going to read you some of their highlights or lowlights in recent history. In 2008 Olympics... We dropped the baton during the exchange, and we were disqualified. In 2009, World Championship, we exchanged it too early, and we were disqualified. In 2011, we ran into another runner, and he fell, and we just stayed on the ground. 2015, we exchanged it too late, and we were disqualified. In fact, going into the 2021 Olympics, the last one we had, we had messed up the exchange seven of our past 11 big races, and we've been disqualified for six of them. So going into the last Olympics, you're thinking... I bet we learned our lesson. We got this figured out. Surely that's all we practiced is the baton exchange. Well, we messed it up again. In 2021, the two guys on the exchange ran into each other trying to pass it. We finished sixth, and we didn't go to the next race. So next year, if you watch nothing else in the Olympics, watch the men relay, and hopefully we'll figure this out between now and then. But we all had this desire, like we see in Psalm 78, to, to pass our faith down to the next generation it's like we've been running this Christian race for a long time, carrying our faith, and now it is time for us to pass that baton of faith down to the next generation. And like the men's team, there's a lot of ways we could mess that up. There's a lot of ways we could drop the baton and, and fail to pass that down. But we are called to be faithful in that. If there's one thing we as believers need to be good at, we, we need to be good at passing that baton of faith down to the next generation. Some of y'all have been running the Christian race for five years. Some of y'all have been Christians for 10 years. Some of y'all 20. I imagine some of you have been running the Christian race with Jesus Christ for 50 years. And in Psalm 78, we received this call to make sure that from this day forward, we are finding those people around us to pass that baton of faith on to them. We, we want to leave a legacy of faith that will outlive and outlast us. So in these short verses, Psalm 78, I want us to look at three ways that we can leave a legacy of faith. The first way, looking at verse 4, we leave a legacy of faith by declaring to the coming generation who God is and what he's done. Who God is and what he's done. Look at verse 4. It says, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Psalm 78, a psalm written by Asaph, is the longest historical psalm in the Old Testament. Not the longest psalm, that's Psalm 119, but it's the longest historical psalm, 72 verses. And the rest of this psalm will do what verse 4 just said. Verse 4 says, we're going to tell the next generation about the glorious deeds and the might of the Lord and the wonders that he has done. And for the rest of these verses, that's what it does. It recounts testimony after testimony, story after story of God's goodness, God's faithfulness, God's provision, God's deliverance, just reminding everyone of their history with Him. And I'm telling you, He's always been faithful, amen? So how do we tell the next generation, or what do we pass on to them? We're going to tell them the glorious deeds of the Lord, that's what He's done, the wonders that He's done, okay, those are His actions, and His might, that's who He is, the very character, the very nature of God. We want to proclaim to them who he is and what he's done. And what's interesting in verse 4, the opposite of proclaiming to the next generation or telling the next generation who God is and what he's done is not not telling them. We would think those would be the opposite. You're either going to tell them or you're not going to tell them. But the opposite here, the antithesis of telling them is hiding it from them. There's no neutral ground presented there in verse verse 4. It doesn't say, listen, you'll either pass the baton of faith on or you won't. It says you'll either tell them or you will actively hide it from them. Like having that light that we put under the lampshade so no one can see it. We are called to not hide it from their children, but tell them the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might. This is a reproducing discipleship. In fact, in these first four five verses in Psalm 78, we have at least five generations that are present. It says in verse 3, we heard this from our fathers. Now in verse four, it's gone from our fathers to us to the next generation. We see in verse five, we want to go to the children in verse six to their children who aren't even born un, or born yet, and then in, later in verse six, they're going to rise up and tell them to their children. This is five, six generations of discipleship going on making disciples that make disciples and make disciples. It reminds us of second Timothy two: two, where Paul tells Timothy, "What you've heard from me, and trust to faithful men who will teach others." Also, in Galatians 1, Paul says that he heard the gospel from Jesus. So it went from Jesus to Paul, Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, faithful men to others. That's five generations of discipleship. Think about the people who shared the gospel with you. Think about the people who shared the gospel with them. That's three generations of passing that baton of faith. Now, who have you passed the baton of faith on to? And have we done it in such a way that they can then pass that baton of faith down to, to even the next generation? People who aren't even born yet. Asap is concerned about the people who aren't even born yet making sure that they also hear the gospel. Have you ever wondered who's going to be in this room 30 years from now? What about 50 years from now? What about after everyone in this room is home, hopefully with Jesus in heaven, who's going to be here? Will there still be a church there? Are are we making sure that we pass this baton of faith and tell the next generation who God is and what he's done in such a way that 20 years, 30 years, 50 years from now, there's still a vibrant, living church family here who is a light to this community. The next generation, whether we tell them about the Lord or not, I, I guarantee the next generation, they're hearing a lot of things right now. Every year, there's more than 3,000 new video games released. Every year, there's 32,000 new young adult novels that are published every single year. Every day, there's a new 2,000 apps available on Android phones and iPhones. That means if you downloaded 2,000 apps today, tomorrow there'll be 2,000 new ones that you don't even have yet. Every single day, including today, there will be 3.7 million new YouTube videos uploaded. So if you've watched everything on YouTube, then starting tomorrow, you're 3.7 million videos behind. And every single day on Instagram, there are 95 million new pictures and videos that are uploaded. The generation behind us, the coming generation, they are saturated by all these messages. The coming generation behind us, they spend on average 3,000 hours a year on screens. Millions of videos and pictures and influences, as we call it. They are saturated with the cultural narratives and the cultural messages and the cultural influences of our day. Meanwhile, they're getting 100 hours a year at the church house. Who do you think is winning their heart? What do you think is shaping their worldview? We need a Psalm 78 congregation of God's people that are passionate. That In the midst of all this noise, we are telling them the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are telling them who God is and what he's done. We are telling them that there is one true living God who is all-faithful and all-knowing and all-powerful and all-present. He's the God who sees us, and he's the God who hears us. He is loving and gracious and merciful and forgiving. He is our shelter, our refuge, our protector, our provider, our shepherd, and our savior. He is a living water and the bread of heaven. He is the bread of life. He's a prince of peace and the Lord of lords and the king of kings. They need to know who God is and what he's done. One of the ways we tell them what he's done is we share our testimonies with them. Let me ask you this, parents, grandparents. Do your children... And do your grandchildren know your testimony? Have you ever just sat down with them and said, have I told you how Jesus saved me? Have I told you a little bit about my life before Christ and who was it that shared the gospel with me and how the Lord drew me to himself and what, what, what changed when that happened? Have I told you about my life now in Christ, how different that is? Have we passed even those testimonies down to the next generation? There's a passage in Joshua 4 where after Joshua leaves God's people uh, going to the promised land, they get to the Jordan River. God parts the Jordan River, and on their way to the promised land, they cross it on dry ground. And on the other side of the Jordan River, God tells them, get 12 men, one from each of the 12 tribes, go back to that dry ground, and each man get a stone and carry it on their shoulder to the place they're going to lodge. So I picture these big stones you put on your shoulder. I'm sure he chose the 12 strongest guys they had, and they get these 12 stones and they carry it to where they're going to lodge. They set them down that night. And this was God's idea. And God tells them, the reason you're doing this is so that one day when your children see those stones and they ask you, what do they mean? You'll tell them what God did on that day. I have some friends that keep these little rocks next to their kitchen table. And they leave it on the kitchen table and they wait for one of their kids to ask, what does that mean? And they tell them, it's so I can share a testimony with you. They treat them like memorial stones. And every time someone asks about the rock, they tell them another testimony about who God is and what he's done. In the midst of all the noise, all the cultural messages and narratives of our day, all the influencers and influences they are surrounded by, we need a Psalm 78 congregation of God's people passionate about telling them who God is and what he's done. The second way that we leave a legacy of faith is we leave a A legacy of faith by teaching specifically the word of God to the coming generation. Actually taking the Bible and teaching them. Look at verse 5. It says, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. Verse 5, he established a testimony. He appointed a law. The, The Hebrew word there for law is, of course, Torah. And it means teaching. So we have the testimony of God, the law of God, the Torah of God, the teaching of God, the word of God. And where do we have that today? We have it here in our Bible. And it says that God has actually commanded us to teach our children his word, his law, his Torah, his teaching. Where did God command us to do that? Well, all throughout the Bible. Genesis 18, Deuteronomy 11, Deuteronomy 32, Ephesians 6. But in Deuteronomy 6 is a passage we come to a lot. And in Deuteronomy 6, God tells parents to be what we would call great commandment Christians. He says you should love God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and might. Y'all have it right there on the wall, love Him. It says the word of God must be on your heart. And then once you love God and the word of God is on your heart, God commands parents to then teach the word of God to their children in their house, to te- tell them you're going to love God and then you're going to tell them. Y'all have it right here in the Sanctuary. And in Deuteronomy 6, 7, it says that parents are going to teach the word of God diligently to their children. They're going to chisel it into stone. They're going to impress it on their hearts. So this is the law they're thinking about here in verse 5. Maybe even they're thinking of Deuteronomy 6, saying he gave us Deuteronomy 6, that we are commanded to teach our children. Did you know, parents, we are commanded in the Bible to teach the Bible to our children in our homes? We are commanded to teach them that. We talk about doing this through family worship and family discipleship and family devotions. When I say family worship, I'm, you know, family worship takes place when the whole household gathers together to teach and enjoy the word of God, to pray with and for one another and to offer praises to the Lord. When's the last time you gathered the people in your home and you opened the Bible together? You prayed together, you offered praises. I imagine most of you have a Bible in your home. Some of you might have 10 Bibles in your home, but it's one thing to have a Bible in our home, and it's another thing to have the Bible on our heart. And in verse 5, we see this reminder that we need to make sure that we impress the Word of God onto the hearts of our children. We, might, we need to give them the scriptures. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul tells Timothy that when he sees his faith, he's reminded That that faith first existed in his mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice. See, Lois and Eunice, Timothy's mom and grandmother, they had faith. And they passed that baton of faith down to Timothy. And in 2 Timothy 3, Paul is able to tell Timothy, in the midst of all the evil around you, in the midst of all the deceivers and deceit around you, you're going to continue in what you've learned from childhood. That faith that was passed down to you from your mother and your grandmother, you're going to keep walking in it. And then he reminds him that those scriptures that he was taught as a child are able to lead him to faith in, sal- or faith in Jesus Christ, able to lead him to salvation. You see, when we bring the Bible to the kids, when you bring the Bible to your next generation, when you teach the word of God to your grandchildren and children, you're giving them this rock-solid foundation. So in the midst of all the evil in this culture, all the deceit and lies in our culture, they are able to continue and follow in that faith that you pass down to them. When you bring them the word of God, it leads them to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We leave a legacy of faith by teaching the word of God. We leave a legacy of faith by proclaiming the gospel. The whole Bible points to Jesus. So we can start in the beginning. Let's tell them the whole gospel let's start in the beginning let's tell the next generation there's one true living god who created everything and he created man and woman male and female he created them in his image and he put them in the garden And he told them they could eat the fruit of any tree they wanted but if they they ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil they would die Adam and eve were in the garden they had this command from god they were naked but they felt no shame but then the serpent came to them satan came to them and he told them if you eat the fruit of that tree you won't die so they had the truth of God in one hand, they had the lies of the enemy in the other hand, and they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Eve took the fruit, she ate it, she gave it to her husband who was with them, he also ate it, and immediately their eyes were open, and as sin entered the world, as sin entered that first marriage, that first family, they immediately felt shame. And they did what we try to do. They try to cover their shame. They got fig leaves and try to cover their nakedness. They do what we do when we sin. They hid from God. But even while they were hiding from God, God still sought them out. And he called them by name. And in Genesis 3, we read about some of the consequences of their sin. But we also, in Genesis three fifteen, read a promise. A hope of redemption in the midst of this new fallen world. God tells them one day one will come through the seed of the woman who will crush Satan. And if you're reading the Bible for the first time, from that moment on, you're waiting for the one who's going to crush Satan. At the end of that story, God does what we could never do. God covered their shame. God took the skin of an animal and covered their shame, foreshadowing that God's going to have to provide a sacrifice in order to cover our shame. So we're waiting for the one who's going to crush Satan. We're waiting for the sacrifice provided by God that will cover our shame. Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain didn't crush Satan. Cain crushed Abel. And so God gave them another son named Seth, and through the family of Seth came a man named Noah. During the time of Noah, all the people were rebelling against God, and the wages of sin is always death. Sin always leads to death, and so God sent the flood, and yet God is merciful. Even in the midst of that sinful, broken, fallen world, God showed mercy, and he saved Noah and his wife, their three sons, and their three wives through the ark, two generations of people. They started to multiply, but instead of filling the earth, they stayed in one spot, There's one nation, one language, and they started building the Tower of Babel, trying to make a name for themselves, so God confused their language and scattered them out. So now we have thousands of nations and thousands of languages, and in the very next chapter, God chose one man from one nation, Abram, and said, through you, one will come who will bless all of these nations. So we're waiting for the one who's going to crush Satan, we're waiting for the one who's going to cover our shame, and we're waiting for the one who's going to bless all nations. Abraham had a son named Isaac, and God told Abraham, take Isaac up on the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. So he obeyed and he got to the mountain and he told his servants, you wait here at the bottom of the mountain, me and the boy are gonna go up to worship and then we will return. As they were walking up the mountain, Isaac said, dad, I see the fire and the knife for the sacrifice, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide. He laid Isaac on the altar, but the angel of the Lord told Abraham, don't harm the boy. And he looked up, and there in the thicket was a ram caught in the thicket. He got Isaac off the altar. He put the ram on the altar in his place, a substitutionary sacrifice. And the death of the ram meant the life of the boy. So we're waiting for the one who's going to crush Satan, the sacrifice that will cover our shame, the one who will bless all nations, the Lamb of God, that God will provide, the substitutionary sacrifice that will take our place on the altar, and his death will mean our life. Isaac had a son named Jacob, and God changed his name to Israel so that all the descendants after that are called the Israelites, the nation of Israel. Israel, Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom was Joseph, and through Joseph, God moved that whole family, that whole nation to Egypt. After a while, they became slaves in Egypt. They were slaves for 430 years. And then they cried out to God, and God heard their prayers, and God raised up a man named Moses to deliver them. He sent Moses to Egypt. He sent t- 10 plagues to Egypt, and the 10th plague was the plague of the Passover lamb. He told them, take a spotless lamb, sacrifice it, take the blood of the spotless lamb, put it on the doorpost of your house, so when the angel of the Lord sees the blood of the Passover lamb, the wrath of God will pass over your home. Moses led them out of Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. After Moses died, he raised up a man named Joshua. They parted God parted the Jordan River. They crossed over. He took them to the land he promised them, the promised land. And while they lived in the promised land, they had judges who ruled over them. But after some time, they rejected God as their king and said, We want a human king. We want to be like the other nations. So God gave them a king. He gave them Saul. Then he gave them David. Then he gave them Solomon and other kings. And during the time of the kings, they also had prophets. And the prophets gave more promises of the one who was to come, the one we're waiting for. The prophets told us the one who's going to come will be born of a virgin. He'll be born in Bethlehem. He'll come through the family of David and he'll be king forever. He'll be a suffering servant. He'll be bruised for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And by his wounds, we will be healed So we're waiting for the one who's going to crush Satan, the sacrifice that's going to cover our shame, the one who's going to bless all nations, the Lamb of God, that God will provide the substitutionary sacrifice that will take our place on the altar, and his death will mean our life. We're waiting for the blameless, spotless, pure, perfect, sinless Passover Lamb of God whose blood will cover us so that the wrath of God will pass over us. We're waiting for the one to be born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem through the family of David, to be king forever, the suffering servant who would be crushed for our sins, bruised for our iniquities, and by his his wounds, we would be healed. At the end of the Old Testament, the Old Testament's closed, we wait 400 years. And after 400 years, Jesus was born. He's the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the Word of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. And when he started his ministry, he, he was pointed at by John the Baptist, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He is born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, and he is the one who died on the cross for our sins. He was buried for three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. On the third day, he rose again, conquering sin, death, and hell. He is the one who crushed Satan. He is the one who blesses all nations. He's the sacrifice that covers our shame. He is a spotless, pure Passover lamb of God, sinless lamb of God, whose blood covers us so that the wrath of God passes over us. He's the lamb of God provided by God. He's a substitutionary sacrifice who took our place on the cross so that he gets our sin, we get his righteousness. He gets our death, we get his life. The Bible teaches that we are sinners and our sin separates us from God. We need to be righteous, but we're not. We need to become righteous, but we can't. But the Bible teaches because of what Jesus did on the cross. If we would put our faith in Jesus, God would reckon our faith, count our faith as righteousness. Many of you remember the people who first told you that gospel story. The people who first brought the Bible to you, the word of God to you. In Psalm 78, we are called to now be those people who are bringing the word of God to the next generation. There's a missionary in the 19th century named David Livingston that trekked across Africa. And it is said that when he started his journey, he had three backpacks with 73 books weighing 180 pounds. And he started his journey across Africa with all these packs, all these books, and they got heavy. So after about 10 miles, he took out a few books to lighten his load. And every 10, 15, 20 miles or so, he'd take some books out of his pack to lighten the load. And it is said that when he finally finished his journey... He only had one book left, and that, of course, was the Bible. The next generation is saturated with so many messages, just an onslaught of stories and narratives from the culture. And yet the one book, the one thing they need is the Word of God. We need a Psalm 78 congregation of God's people, zealous to pass the Word of God on to the next generation. Generation. That is how we leave a legacy of faith. And then finally, the third way that we can leave a legacy of faith is by leading the coming generation to set their hope in God. We're going to tell them who God is and what he's done. We're going to proclaim the word of God to them. We're going to bring the gospel, the Bible to them. We're going to bring it into our homes and pass it on to our kids. We're going to pass the word of God on to our grandkids. And we're doing all this so that we can be used by the Lord to lead them to set their hope in God. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 is the culmination of all this. It's the prayer that we've been praying. It's the hope of all this. It's the reason we want to do all these other things in verses 4 through 6. Why do we want to pass our Baton of faith down to the next generation. Here's what we're hoping for. Here's what we're praying for in verse 7. So that they should set their hope in God, not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. There's three things we're praying for, three things we're hoping for. That they would hope in God, they won't forget him, and they will obey him. Can you imagine if 30 years from now... People ask you, hey, remember the young people of your church back in 2023? You say, yeah, I remember them. Some of those were my kids or grandkids. You say, remember the people, young people from 2023? 30 years later, they ask you, where are they at now? What are they doing now? How would you describe them? What if 30 years from now, you're able to say, let me tell you what they're doing. They've set their hope in God. They have not forgotten his works. And they obey his commandments. That's the prayer. What a contrast to verse 8. In verse 8, we're reminded of a previous generation that was stubborn and rebellious, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. It reminds me of a time where we saw this happen in the Bible. We saw the baton drop. The faith was not passed down to the next generation, and it led us It leads us to one of the most heartbreaking verses in the Bible. And I know some of y'all have actually just studied this recently. It's in Judges 2.10. Judges 2.10, we get one of the most heartbreaking verses in the Bible because after Joshua and all the elders and that whole generation was dead and gone in Judges 2.10, it says, after that, there arose another generation who did not know the Lord. There arose another generation who did not know the Lord. As Pastor said, I'm a professor at the seminary there in Fort Worth and I work with a lot of our PhD students on their dissertations that they're doing this great research and they're, they're conducting surveys and finding statistics and, and then we're reading all the other research we can get our hands on across the nation. And here's what I've learned. Every piece of research out there tells us that right now in America, looking at the next generation, we are headed to Judges 2.10. Every piece of research tells us that right now, if we continue on our trajectory, 30 years from now, we will say there arose another generation who did not know the Lord. But God is able to change all of that. God is able to turn the tide. I mean, we serve a God who moves mountains. We serve a God where we say nothing is impossible for him. So we look at all the research over here. We look at all this going on in our culture, all the mess and sin and lies and confusion. And we look at the trajectory on and all that on one hand, we come back over here to Psalm 78, 7. We say, but the Lord could do this. He's brought revival to our nation before he could do it again. What we need is a Psalm 78 generation that is praying verse 7. Verse 7 is a prayer. We are praying that they would hope in God. And let me tell you right now, the next generation, they will hope in something. In fact, I would say they already do. The gun's been fired. They're already chasing something. They've already put their hope in something. And if they have put their hope in anything other than the Lord, they're on a path to destruction. But here in Psalm 70, we have this group of prayer warriors. We're not just passing down testimonies, passing down the gospel, passing down our faith. We, we have a prayer on our heart for that generation. We're praying that they would hope in God. When was the last time you got in your prayer closet and you just prayed for your kids? You prayed for your grandkids? When was the last time you went to Daniel or Cole or a leader here at the church you said, tell me, how can I be praying for the young people in our church? I want to be a prayer warrior for them. Tell me how to pray. I have these countless memories growing up as a child. Both my parents, praise God, are Christians, and I grew up with them being believers. And I have all these memories of me coming down the stairs in the morning, and I'd see my dad. We had this blue 1970 velvet armchair. I don't know where he got this. You know, uh, someone else threw it out, I think, and we got it. And he would be sitting in this blue chair. He'd have his coffee on the end table. He'd have his Bible in his lap, and he'd be reading the Word of God, having his devotion. But if I woke up a little bit late, if I missed seeing that part, I'd come down the stairs. He'd already be done with his coffee, done with his devotion. I would still smell the coffee in the air. He'd have the Bible on the chair, and he'd be on his knees in front of that chair, his face buried in the Bible, praying for his family. Can you imagine what that does to a young boy, seeing that morning after morning growing up? Can you imagine if if, if the next generation... Constantly saw us in prayer for them. I mean, really praying. Like your kids and your grandkids, not only have you given them your testimony, not only have you given them the gospel, not only do you open the Bible in your home with them, but they know that you are praying for them. I mean, really praying. When I I say really praying, I, I think about this guy that Paul writes about in Colossians. In Colossians 4, Paul is finishing his letter. And he's doing all these greetings. Greet this person, greet this person. I give you greetings from these people. And one of the greetings he gives them is from a man named Epaphras. Now, they know this guy. They love this guy. In fact, Epaphras was the first one to ever share the gospel with them. Long before they knew Paul, Epaphras was there sharing the gospel with them. And Paul tells them, hey, greetings from Epaphras. Then he tells them, by the way, he, he's been praying for you. But he doesn't just say he's been praying for you. You know what he says? He says, Epaphras has been fighting for you, wrestling for you in prayer. You know, if someone comes up to me and they say, Jonathan, I just want you to know I've been praying for you, that means a lot. It really does. I need every prayer I can get. But if someone came up to me and said, Jonathan, I want you to know that I have been fighting for you in prayer, that hits a little different, doesn't it? Have you been fighting in prayer for your kids? Have you been fighting in prayer for your grandkids? What about the next generation? I mean, look, I get it. As adults, we see what's going on in our world right now and in our nation right now, and we're like, what in the world is happening? You ever watch the news and you're just like, what? And it's so easy to just complain about it, criticize it, pretend it's not happening. But what if our response to all that was not complaining and criticizing and and ignoring it, but what if one of our responses to all that was prayer Like really fighting in prayer for this next generation. We know what they're up against. The culture's coming at them. These messages are coming at them. The enemy is attacking them. They're surrounded by lies all day, every day. We're either going to tell them about Jesus or we're going to hide it from them. We're either going to tell them our testimonies or we're going to hide it from them. And we're either going to be on our face fighting for them in prayer or we're not. fighting in prayer, praying that they would hope in God. I know that every time Pastor Scott preaches, y'all have a chance to respond, and I love that. I love that because I believe that every time we encounter the Word of God, we need to respond to the Word of God one way or another. A lot of times on Sunday morning when we encounter the Word of God, one of our favorite ways to respond is we'll stand up and we'll just worship and sing songs of praise. I love that. Carlos and the team gets up here and we've just been in the word of God and so we stand up, we sing our hearts out to the Lord. I love that. And some of you in our invitation today, that might be how the Lord leads you to respond. But I wonder if some of you, God might lead you to respond in a, a different way today. I wonder if some of you, God might have on your heart, I gotta be praying for my kids and grandkids. And if that's you, here's what I wanna challenge you. As we stand up as we're asking God to move, maybe today we need to move a little bit. Some of y'all have been coming to this church for years, but maybe it's been a while since you actually moved a little bit during the invitation. And maybe you want to mark this day. I want to remember this day when I recommitted to be a prayer warrior for my kids and grandkids. I recommitted to fight for them in prayer. And so during the invitation, if that's you, I want you to grab your kids and grandkids. If they're here, if not, you just come down the invitation and spend this day responding and praying for them and over them and with them. Some of y'all were with us yesterday at the family conference and even in our talks yesterday, guys put some things on your heart for your marriage, for your family. Let's respond to that. Don't start the work week tomorrow without responding to that. So during the invitation, if that's you from yesterday, come down, take your wife's hand, grab your husband's hand. Y'all come down, pray as a couple, pray with your kids, pray for your grandkids. And let's just actually move a little bit as we're asking God to move. Now, some of you I know very well, as we're walking through Psalm 78, every time I said the next generation, there's been someone on your heart. And it's been a prodigal in your family. Some of you have kids right now, young kids, maybe adult kids, who have just, they've they've drifted from the Lord. Some of you have grandkids right now who've drifted from the Lord. Pastor Scott, like always, he's going to be right here at the front. If you have a prodigal in your home, I want to encourage you, come up, come pray with Pastor Scott. If he's praying with someone else, then you come to the altar, pray for him, and then go pray with Pastor Scott. But get some people praying with you. Let's not give up. Remember, God is able. God can turn the tide. God can draw them back to himself. God can save them. There's no one so far gone that the Lord's hand can't reach them. So whether you're praying with your kids or grandkids or praying for them, praying with your spouse and praying over the things we talked about yesterday for your marriage, or you're praying over the product for Pastor Scott, I want to challenge you to move during this time. If you don't have kids, you don't have grandkids, you know young people here at the church, don't you? Maybe Some of y'all work for them. Raise your hand if you've ever worked with preschool here. What about children? Have you ever volunteer with the children here? Anybody ever volunteer with the youth? Some of y'all, y'all been doing Psalm 78 years. You come week after week and you serve with these kids. You know some of them. This is the time to pray with them. Go find Daniel. Go find Cole. Say, who do I need to pray for? I want to be a prayer warrior. I want to be an Epaphras for them, fighting for them in prayer. But however the Lord is leading, let's move today as we ask God to move, and let's bring these before the Lord in prayer. Would you stand with me this morning? Lord Jesus Christ, we need you to move in a mighty way, God. We need you to move in our own hearts, and we need you to move in our homes. God, we are burdened for our children and grandchildren this morning. We are burdened for the use of our church. For the kids of our church, we are burdened for the next generation in our community, Lord. We see what they're up against. We see what the culture is throwing at them all day, every day, Lord Jesus. God, let us not be on cruise control in the midst of all of this. Let us not hide from them the one thing they need, your gospel, Jesus Christ. I pray you would continue to raise up right here that Psalm 78 church. A Psalm 78 congregation that feels the urgency of passing their faith down to the next generation. A Psalm 78 church that's leaving a legacy of faith that will outlive and outlast all of us, Lord Jesus. That we would tell testimonies to them. That we would bring the word of God to them. We'd open up the Bible with them, Lord. We'd walk them through the gospel. And I pray that you would raise us up to be prayer warriors, God. Oh, that we would fight for them in prayer. Oh, that no one would pray for our kids and grandkids more than we do, Lord Jesus. Let us start our mornings on our face, on our knees in that prayer closet, lifting them up, Lord, because you hear prayers. And we believe you're able, God. We believe that you can turn the tide. We believe that you can save this next generation. We believe you can draw them to yourself. Our prodigals that seem so far, gone. God, we know you can reach them. Let me pray that you will, Lord. Let us see you save them. Let us see you draw them back to yourself. We pray all this, Lord Jesus Christ, in your name. Amen.